welcome to another episode of Visitings, where artists talk about the social context of their work. My name is Alan Nakagawa, and I'll be your host. Camilo Cruz is a photographer. You can view his work at camillocruzart.com. In the high-profile world of criminal justice, Camilo has an, a unique vantage point. He is currently on staff with the city attorney's office for the city of Los Angeles. His work is a hybrid offspring of daily experiences in the criminal justice system. He's carved a niche in the system that is unique in both vision and access. Hi, Covello. What up, Alan? <laughs> Thanks for letting me be here. Thank you for coming. I know you're busy and stuff. Work. So, um, what's up with the car? What happened to your, your amazing car? <laughs> I'm you not post, sure. You posted something last night or yesterday. I'm not sure it's so amazing anymore. <laughs> it's, uh, I, I blew, I blew a tire and over the last few years I've been thinking about getting a, well, just not having a car in LA, you know. I grew up thinking like, you know, cars, that's how the only way you get around. And as I get older and as I, you know, see more options, I'm like, you know what? Let me get off this car. And so, you know, we're, in, you know, I'm a little bit astrological. So like we're in Mercury retrograde and it's like, you're supposed to reconsider, redefine your materials, your surroundings and essentially reconstruct everything so i'm like you know what hey this little message right here this little blowout tire is like a way to um listen where did this happen in, in highland park you know where i live cypress park um right near the train stop too so it's very very interesting very <laughs> symbolic <laughs> So I parked, I parked the, the car in the train stop and I, and I, and I left the car as it, and it was hissing air, you know, I just left it and I walked away from the hissing air. <laughs> from the tire. From the tire, like hissing. I'm like, you know what, I, this is, I don't need to deal with no car no more. Here I am going to the, here I am like going to the train, you know? Yeah. Also, you, you said on your post that, how far do you live from the... Five minutes. <laughs> Walking distance. Walking five minutes. You know, it's not like I got to drive to the... I mean, it's... <laughs> I actually bought my little house uh, six years ago, according to the Gold Line stops. I studied all... You know, they were just... Gold Line had just come out, and I studied all the stops to see where I should buy a house. And I've always wanted to live in my Washington. And it's like five minutes perfect, bro. Like this, so so I just gotta go with that original feeling, you know. My car is, you know, whatever. So where is the car now? The car is at home, just yeah, just you know, it's there. gonna sit there, and I'm gonna probably sell it and and just you know take the train everywhere. So you drove it back with a flat. Yeah, I drove it back All with right. a flat. Oh, it was like <laughs> I was gonna change a tire. But I was in my work clothes, bro. You know, oh, so then yeah. I'm like, you know what? Let me let, let me just drive it back. It's just like a quarter of a mile. All right. Everyone honking at me and everything with my little hazards on. And <laughs> one of the, um, I, I forgot who said this, but on one of the comments of that post, uh, they said everyone was for it except for this one guy said it'll ruin your social life. Right. 
How'd you feel about that? Oh, comment? no. No, but then there's another article oh, is it? where one guy posted, said, you're going to get, well, it, it's a story from New York about a man who meets, who's had 500 dates based on his interactions with women on subways. So he, he, he just responded. He's like, you know what? <laughs> you're, you're 500 dates. And then I responded. I'm like, you know what? Like, it's, it's probably... In L.A., you're lucky with five, because in L.A., we're not open. Like, we, we, we don't, we look at each other, you know, approaching strangers is kind of weird. And so, but, hey, five might be worth it. You How know? is this person defining dates? Like, he'd meet women. Right. And, and, and just straight up get their number right. and, and text them and, you know, hook up with them later and all on the subway. 500. Wow. It's like, the, he's like the Casanova of the subway or whatever. In New York. In New York. All right. Not that I want to be the Casanova here, but it just makes it all the more like interesting, you know? Because we're all quiet on the train. You know this, Alan. Like, you, you've been on the train, bro. And it's like everyone's real quiet. So it'd be a little bit of a, you have to break through, you know, right. which is probably even a better challenge than just easy. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're living proof that things are changing in Los Angeles <laughs> in terms of that in terms of transportation exactly public transportation well I, I, like I said I grew up um, thinking that the freeway is where you get everywhere and you get there faster by the freeway right that's I, it was no buses no side streets no you know no apps you go the freeway and I, I keep doing that to this day my, my conditioning in Los Angeles and the freeways are a joke now bro so it's like you an hour to get anywhere on a freeway, you know? <laughs> it's crazy. Um, I want to go back on two things you said. Uh, one is that you're from L.A., born and raised in L.A., so let's talk a little bit about that. And the other was that you were in your work clothes. Let's talk mm -hmm. about your work clothes. <laughs> so let's start with uh, born and raised in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what that means. You're Alan Nakagawa. Like you, you, you were here, like me, in the same generation growing up. And you know we have a, f a few, sh you know, similar friends, and you know who grew up here. Um, I, uh, my my grandfather left the Mexican Revolution in the probably the the teens or the 20s and he left Zacatecas, Mexico to come to LA and he was the oldest of I don't know like, like eight kids and and he settled here um, in Dogtown what then was called Dogtown and well it still is you got gangs there and, or like the projects right there um, and then he, you know, he had a family, and, and what, a, exactly what areas? That's Lincoln know. Heights, l l near Lincoln Heights, um, L.A. River, right there. Uh, Cornfields, you know, L.A. State Historic Park now, or whatever. And my, um, and then he had my dad, and you know, his brothers. And my dad was grew, they grew up in Highland Park, Cypress Park. So this is all Northeast L.A. I, I'm like three generations Northeast L.A. Mm. And uh, he met my mom, who's actually from New York. My mom ran away from New York to be here, you know. So 
It was, uh, you know, I'm, I'm L.A. three generations. Uh, my grandfather from Mexico was a big band leader here. He, he, he was um, uh, combining, let's say, like, like Desi Arnaz combining Latin music with big band jazz. And guys like Andy Russell and Eddie Cano were on that big band. And he um, basically created this whole like sort of sound in L.A. in probably the 30s, I think it was, of combining Latin music with big band music. Then my father combined, you know, his legal practice. He grew up here and he became a lawyer, was a hardcore radical civil rights lawyer, and he became an activist, but he combined activism with lawyering. And now I see myself, a, you know, through my suit being a public administrator and an artist. So we're, I come from a, a long line of creatives here in Los Angeles. And I'm, I'm damn proud of that. Like my grandfather, my, my father, you know, me. And talk about knowing your life's purpose. Like talk about knowing what I got to do. Mm-hmm. Like I got, I come from generations of people combining, you know, right. combining worlds that would, and I call it seemingly disparate worlds, you know. Mexican music and big man music. You know, my father was, I mean, my grandfather was actually one of the founders of Bilingual Radio in, oh. in, in, in L.A. Uh, Don Ramon Cruz Magallanes, you know, my grandfather in Zacatecas. And he would start with just speaking jokes in Spanish, going back and forth and playing music under, under sort of like radio. And there's a, there's a Steve Losa's Barrio Rhythms, uh, the book, Ethnomusicologist. Steve Losa from UCLA wrote about him. And uh, so, yeah, okay, combining, dude, you know? Wow, that's, I didn't know that. Yeah. That's fantastic. Um, it makes, oh, so your mom is making more sense to me now. <laughs> she's the only thing that made sense on my, on my, in my family. Like, she's the only one who kind of brought in some, well, I, uh, you know, I'm half Mexican, half Puerto Rican. I look at the Mexican side as the crazy, crazy, like, that's the crazy side. That's the, the revolutionary. That's the meeting of, you know, two different hemispheres. That's the, you know, the Puerto Rican side, the Caribeño side, the Caribbean is all about, to me, it's a lot more island, you know, the island feel, you know, just live life, you know, eat, dance, be with family. Don't, don't sweat the small things, you know. But that was, yeah. It's beautiful. So you got both. Oh, dude, I'm freaking lucky, man. So, and my mom's from New York, so I'm going to, you know, I got New York in me and LA in me, you know? I'm lucky. Do you still have family in New York? Yeah. Uh I'm going to go, December, I'm going to go for my birthday, December 27. And we're going to go over there and we're going to party with the Puerto Ricans, you know? Puerto Rican side, salsa music. We don't have enough of that here, but Mm. (laughs) yeah, here was a Mexican thing. Which, you know, again, I get to have both both worlds, I think. That's right. Let's talk about that suit. <laughs> that work clothes. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, I want to say that it's... There's no one more appropriate to ask me that question than you, because... You and your career, you know, is trying to find the expressions, you know, creative expressions inside major institutional bureaucracies. You know, you were in MTA, 
and then you know uh, Department of Transportation. I was in Superior Court, and now the City Attorney's Office, you know, LA City Attorney's Office, and that. So we we had, I think, what you and I both did with our lives is kind of learn how to um, find the creative expressions inside of suffocating institutional bureaucracy. You know. Well, thankfully, MTA. But see, MTA was got wind first because they are dealing with moving public into public spaces. So it's about more freedom and more movement. So I think that the stations were a big um, honoring of art in public and in institutional spaces, you know. Mm-hmm. What, what you did with helping to found the stations, you know. Um, for me, I... I'm doing your. I was doing your stuff, but within a justice context, and because again, so my father was a radical civil rights attorney. Never made a dime. Died broke. Died at fifty. You know, um, uh, what is it like? Three packs of Marlboro a day, six joints a day, for thirty years straight, and he just worked his off, and he died. So, but that fighting spirit, fighting against the system stayed in me like and so you know my first memory of my father was him beating the, the hell out of a LAPD officer Ooh. beating the hell out of a LAPD officer that was my first memory and so my, what my mom did and again bringing in the Caribbean like to the crazy revolutionary Mexican was to say you know she gave me my camera and it kind of channeled that anger that was building inside me about the cops about my life as a young Chicano or like my life, you know, not feeling right as mm-hmm. a as a young Chicano in LA. That camera was her way to channel my energy that the father, my father, cultivated in me. Um, channel it towards nonviolent creative expression. So she gave me a, a Nikon FM2. So, getting back to your question about the suit, so I, I chose a life of politics and and like social change, the way that we're taught to to do it in in generation x we weren't taught to fight like havana 1950s Mm. to bring guns out we were fought we taught to like we were taught to be in the system somehow or change it through the system even though my father didn't want that he was fighting the system but generation x we didn't grow up with that we grew up with you you fight from within somehow or you or you you don't rock the boat too too much so then i i chose a career in politics. I got a master's in, in uh, public policy mm-hmm. and I joined LA City Council, Mike Fear, city attorney right now, um, in the late 90s. And that's where I started taking self-portraits, you know, in my office in the late 90s film. And from then on, I just kept building and building that, that body of work, uh, me inside the justice system. And that's why I had a suit on that day. Because I got it. You, you're supposed to wear suits. <laughs> you're supposed to wear suits. And luckily for me, I've been able to um, to get the, earn the trust of judges and lawyers and be there. And so I'm now, you know, a decision maker in the system. So that's why I wear a suit. The clothing is very is very um important expression 
Um, God, just this morning I was talking to somebody and she's a, a dear friend and her clothes to me feel like she's putting on her cubicle in the morning. Like, so, so the clothes become, are the first layer, internal layer of the cubicle. And then so she walks in ready to sit within that costume of a cubicle. Mm. That's what I, th- I, that's how deep clothing is for us who work in the system. That's why I always see you with a tie. Like, you know, it's, 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 an, it's not only referencing our psychological interaction with the system, but it's also just like, kind of like, and you get this, it's an honoring of the system too. Like, there feels, there's a pride in being, feeling like you're opening something new. Whether you get, you know, judged or critiqued or, or demoted or promoted, whatever, at the end of the day, you know something that there's an, an opening effect happening from your work. Mm-hmm. And that is at the end of the day, like, so I'm doing inter- interventions too. I'm, I'm doing it more on policy. And so I, I have to do the interventions there, but I also make visual expressions of that intervention. But yeah, I, I, it's it's about feeling that we're doing something, and it may not be special. A hundred years from now, what we did was not special, but right now we feel like it's something, mm-hmm. and it's not even vocalized as much as it's felt. So, if I could simplify your role, I see it two twofold. One is the job, and what the job has been customized to your talents. That's one. And, mm-hmm. and part of that is the policy uh, shaping that you mentioned. The other is, as the photographer, this this other, the painter in your mind. The, <laughs> I can't imagine what, uh, what daily opera you get to witness, you know? And then so there's these key moments where you jot it down. It's like, oh, my God, that's an amazing juxtaposition of emotions or whatever. You just and then you recreate it on the weekends, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That's so. Let's talk about those two things. So let's start with the photographer. Like walk walk us through that process. When we when we go to your website or you see a show, we see the end product. But what I'm equally as interested in is the process of how do you get to that photograph? And you never really share that when you present your work. Unless it's a lecture or something like that. Right. Yeah. You know, um, camera, it's a couple fundamental, I think, basic responses to that. One, cameras are not allowed. Cameras are prohibited in the spaces of justice. Right? So why not use that tool? (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like, let's, let's go ahead and start with that one. Um... Number two, photographic material is what's been used a lot within the language of justice. So you use photography, visual representations, things as truth. Mm-hmm. You know, you use them as truth in evidence. You use them as, as truth in exhibits. 
and you just so use that language you know what i'm saying so so photography yes my mom gave me that nikon when i was in la growing up you know in northeast la but it also happened to be the language of the system i was working with it also like you know hey we have visual evidence of you committing that act so therefore use that now since cameras are prohibited i had to figure out a way to use the camera. So I would do it on weekends and I would do it with people who work in the system. I'd say, hey, I, you know, I saw this amazing scene, like you talked about earlier, the opera, man, that we get. You get that opera, I can't photograph it. I'm not allowed to photograph it. So let me recreate it. And that's where I could, that's where I went to art school is learn how to, you know, the references to recreate the, um, the artistic, influences i could look at in that vein of recreation mm. so then i'm like all right let me let me recreate on a weekend but i would use only just real justice system actors i wouldn't use like models and because the overacting didn't help like the uncomfortable acting recreation was more tr honest to the truth of what occurred than an actor acting I need discomfort. I need weirdness. So you'll see a lot of judges, a lot of bureaucrats, a lot of like police officers or, you know, people, litigants in my imagery that is uh, dis discomfort, like uncomfortable energy. And the hope of that is to replicate the, it's uncomfortable being in a freaking court mm. versus having an actor who would overact the position. Interesting. So I have an inmate, I have a, a body of work dealing solely with inmates. I have a body of work dealing with judges and I have a body of work dealing with inmates. Um, the inmate work was all, again, like it's just, I don't know how do these things come up, but it was based on, so going back, I, I'm, I'm a sort of figure in the justice reform movement in LA so I've always been known to work with justice decision makers about um I love that dog right there that's my dog JJ <laughs> sorry about he's, that no dude he's badass he's he's feeling us right now dude he wants one of these prosciuttos is what he wants <laughs> <laughs> he wants a fig with the prosciutto he has plenty right. of figs outside he's and like, a biscuit he's like hey put <laughs> Um, so then it's like the inmates, I, I came up, so justice reform, I'm a justice reform worker. Um, I work in the city attorney's office. My title is director of the community justice initiative at the superior court. My title was community relations officer. And it was always about making justice different somehow. So, so then an idea I had was, um, you know, cause we're dealing with diversion and trying to, um, undermine mass incarceration we're trying to a lot of us are in the system don't like mass incarceration although many people might think we like it it really doesn't we we see that it's not working so then that's my job is to kind of figure out strategies to undermine the the experience the process of mass incarceration so my thought was to um deal with inmates and say hey, in a workshop context I created was to was to start with inmates 
because uh, at the at the end of the day, I, I believe all healing comes from within. I don't, you know, I grew, my mom was a Zen Buddhist. She grew up here, like, you know, you know her. Um, all healing and freedom starts within. And you could reference a lot of thinkers. You know, Viktor Frankl, a man's search for meaning, you know, like a guy in a Holocaust finds freedom, you know, like. So that was the approach I took to the inmates. And I said, everybody, let's work together on a workshop called Portraits of Purpose. I'd ask them, what's their life? You know, I would go in there. With, I got approval by the sheriff and I would go in and work with a handful of inmates. And I'd ask them, hey, what's your life's purpose? Why were you born? And we spent a week unpacking that question. Mm. And at, they'd be writing, they'd be meditating, we'd be reading, we'd be talking, crying, laughing. It was a great experience. Um, I did it at both Men's Central Jail and at um, Century Regional Detention Facility, which is CRDF for the women. And at the end of the week, all I asked them to perform, to enact, to read everything that came from that week of exploring and unpacking what is my life's purpose so then I, I and then i photographed it inside the jail i photographed them inside their recreation area about you know um and so i photographed that and it was all based originally i'm, I'm answering you know very like wordy but it all came back to um how do we explore um ways to help people get out of mass incarceration so mm -hmm. i created that workshop i ended up with these portraits and i have now this workshop going called portraits of purpose you know you we both know a lot of artists and so and often i'll talk i'll say something about your work to somebody and most people have no idea that you're doing the work and we've talked about this, mm -hmm. you and I. Um, what's up with that? How come you're not showing as much as I think you should be showing? Well, first of all, thank you. Um, <laughs> damn, that's a huge question. Dude. I know. Like, well, <laughs> that's what this show is <laughs> about. Yes. <laughs> yeah, let's get to the purpose of the show. Um, <laughs> I, I want to react with negativity to the art community when I think about the answer to that question. Okay. I want to say that the arts don't get me. Hmm. I, I want to say that the the galleries, the people, I want to say that, but I don't think, it's probably more than that. It's different than that. But that's just my little conditioning or whatever. That's just like my little um, tirade. I don't know. I just don't know, man. Like, I think that I, I think of my father. He was a lawyer. He never made a dollar. But boy, was he a lawyer's lawyer. So I believe I'm an artist's artist. Like, I think artists dig me. I think that I could be, like, I'm doing something, you know, interesting. But it stops there. Hmm. Like, hey, like you, you and I could, you know, you could, you've shown me, like you've, you've put me in, in showing situations and only people like you, like it's going to be the trippy people. Like it's going to be like the people who come from some very different 
sort of backgrounds who are going to look at my work that way. Like I've made a whole, I have a whole, whole garage full of like, I have frame pieces upon frame pieces that just are sitting there and, and you know, and, and that's fine. I, I you know, I'm not going to trip. I'm just wondering, like it goes to your question, like, why am I not showing that much? You know what? I, you know, at the end of the day, like, I'd rather be like my dad. I'd rather be, you know, like he was a lawyer's lawyer. I'd rather be an artist's artist. And it, it's, you know, like Fishbone, you know, like they, they weren't, <laughs> Fishbone wasn't all Fishbone, rich yes. and famous, yes. you know, but they were a band's band. Yeah, if you don't know who Fishbone is, you should Google that. Yes, please. That, and that, not just Google, but listen. And listen, and that, that'll explain much of the Los Angeles that most people don't even know about. Well, uh, but outside I, of Los Angeles. And, and I don't even, I mean, I can't even, I shouldn't even dare to compare myself. But but they were a badass band that never got much credit. Like, that never got much play, even though they started, so, so many bands profited from riffing off of them. You know what I'm saying? And not that I'm, again, I don't want to really sound like I'm comparing myself, but at the same time, their band's band, my dad was in lawyer's lawyer and i i feel and maybe it's not true but i'm an artist artist like i could i the artist kind of dig me that's that's good enough that's fair (laughs) but also you uh economically you you have a job see so there's that too huge thank you you put yourself in that position that you could do it's kind of like a little bit too strategic it's kind of like it feels too much like (laughs) like you know i it's too good of planning in a way, you know, like, oh, I'm going to get a job that pays me good money so that I could make art and not care about money or surviving. And, you know, I just work that way and I'm damn lucky. Mm -hmm. I cannot like, I was talking to Raul Baltasar the other day, who is a a buddy of ours, you know him. And he's, I'm like, damn it, dude, you're so lucky you get to spend two years on one year on a painting, one painting. And he responds to me, he goes, well, you're lucky you have benefits, you know, like, so, hey, dude, I think we're all equalized by the universe, by the cosmos, one way or the other. So I may not be showing, but I got other things going. Right. That's right. That concludes another episode of Visitings. Much appreciation to Camilo Cruz for taking the time to speak with us. Um, I'd also like to thank Echo Park Film Center for this opportunity and the good folks at Machine Projects and Dub Lab for letting me share this on 99.1 FM. I'm Alan Nakagawa, sitting in my living room in Koreatown, saying thank you for listening to Visitings. (laughs) 